I forgot. Uh, housekeeping, uh, if you would find these welcome pads at the end of your row and pass them down. We'd love to welcome you uh, and invite you into the This is not sounding good. I'm going to switch packs. Is that okay? Is that okay? Is that better? Yeah. Um, if you're also new, I want to welcome you and, and uh, let you know there are restrooms right outside these back doors and to your left. There's also no bulletin on our download today, so you're just going to have to follow along on the screen. Hope that's okay. We will rectify that for next week. Um, this morning, we are in Daniel chapter 2, and we're going to be chapter 2, verses 24 through 49. It's our custom as a church to read God's Word aloud together. So if you'll find that on the screen behind me, let's join our voices. Therefore Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had assigned to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He came to him, said to him, Don't destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me before the king, and I will give him the interpretation. Then Arioch quickly brought Daniel before the king and said to him, I have found a man among the Judean exiles who can let the king know the interpretation. The king said in reply to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to tell me the dream I had and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king, No wise man, medium, magician, or diviner is able to make known to the king the mystery he asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has let King Nebuchadnezzar know what will happen in the last days. Your dream and the visions that came into your mind as you lay in bed were these. Your majesty, while you were in your bed, thoughts came to your mind about what will happen in the future. The revealer of mysteries has let you know what will happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have more wisdom than anyone living, but in order that the interpretation might be made known to the king and that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. Your majesty, as you were watching, suddenly a colossal statue appeared. That statue, tall and dazzling, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was terrifying. The head of the statue was pure gold. Its chest and arms were silver. Its stomach and thighs were bronze. Its legs were iron and its feet were partly iron and partly fired clay. As you were watching, a stone broke off without a hand touching it, struck the statue on its feet of iron and fired clay, and crushed them. Then the iron, the fired clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were shattered and became like chaff from the th summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away, and not a trace of them could be found." But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we tell the king its interpretation. Your majesty, you are king of kings. The God of the heavens has given you sovereignty, power, strength, and glory. Wherever people live or wild animals or birds of the sky, he has handed them over to you and made you ruler over them all. You are the head of gold. 
After you there will arise another kingdom inferior to yours, and then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which will rule the whole earth. A fourth kingdom will be as strong as iron, for iron crushes and shatters everything. And like iron that smashes, it will crush and smash all the others. You saw the feet and toes, partly of a potter's fired clay and partly of iron. It will be a divided kingdom. The sum of its strength of iron will be in it. You saw the iron mixed with clay, and the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly fired clay. Part of the kingdom will be strong and part will be brittle. You saw the iron mixed with clay. The people will mix with one another, but will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with fired clay. In the days of those kings, the God of the heavens will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, and this kingdom will not be left to another people. It will crush all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, but will itself endure forever. You saw a stone break off from the mountain without a hand touching it, and it crushed the iron, bronze, fired clay, silver, and gold. The great king has has told the king what will happen in the future. The dream is certain and its interpretation reliable. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell face down, worshiped Daniel, and gave orders to present an offering and incense to him. The king said to Daniel, Your God is indeed God of gods, Lord of kings, and a revealer of mysteries, since you were able to reveal this mystery. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many generous gifts. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and chief governor over all the wise men of Babylon. At Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to manage the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have you ever noticed how many of our pop songs are about dreams? This is a huge theme in popular music. If, if, I want to give you a little list. Uh, think about Boulevard of Broken Dreams by Green Day or Dream On by Aerosmith, Wildest Dreams by T. Swift, right? Um, get Out of My Dreams, Get Into My Car, my first cassette tape by Billy Ocean way back in the day. Um, Don't Dream It's Over by Crowded House, Daydream Believer by The Monkees, These Dreams by Heart, uh, I Can Dream About You by Dan Hartman, a really sweet classic right there. Uh, the Eurythmics, uh, Sweet Dreams Are Made of These, Only in Dreams by Weezer, and there's so many others. I, mean, I could go on and on. I think what's fascinating to me is we're fascinated with dreams. We want to know what they mean. And dreams leave us many times shaken or uh, excited, fearful. There's lots of reactions small kids to adults have to our dreams. And so this passage, which is about an interpretation of a dream, should immediately be interesting to us, should immediately grab us, because in this we get something that I think all of us would like. Like, tell us what this means. What is my dream about? And today we're going to look at Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Last week we saw the king in his anxious state over having dreamed something and then demanding that the wise men in his court be able to interpret this for him. And we compared and contrasted Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar, an anxious presence, a non-anxious presence. Today we're going to look at the meaning, interpretation of this dream. Now here's an artist rendering of the statue. that we So head of gold, arms and chest of silver, 
torso of bronze, legs of iron, feet of clay mixed with iron. And, you know, this really represents, I'm going to call it the, rockety, the, the rickety kingdom. The rickety kingdom. This is one of three places in the book of Daniel in chapters 2 and then again in chapter 7 and chapter 11. We walk through the history of these kingdoms, beginning with Babylon and going uh, in order, working through what's co- what is to come. What is to come for the Jewish people? What are the kingdoms they're going to have to live with? All these world empires that are represented by the statue in this dream. And as you go down the statue, each part is less valuable than the one before it, and yet each part of it is a little stronger than the one before it. So let's, let's walk through each of these. The head of gold, we're told in this passage, Nebuchadnezzar, your kingdom is the head of gold. Now, the kingdom of Babylon lasted... Uh, up until about 539 B.C. when it was destroyed. We're going to read about this in a couple weeks. Daniel 5, there's this wild party, which is kind of the culmination of the end of Babylon and the beginning of the next kingdom. You can still visit Babylon today. It's 55 miles outside of Baghdad in Iraq, and it's a UNESCO World Heritage Site, even today. You can go and visit that. Um, The next one, the, the chest... And the arms of silver represent the kingdom of Medo-Persia, the Medes and the Persians. There was a, a coming together, a joining together of two powers to create this power. So from 539 until, um, for about 200 years, until three, 332, the Medes and the Persians reigned. We're going to hear names Cyrus and Darius as we continue through Daniel. And they, they, that kingdom lasted until they were conquered in 332, by a man named Alexander the Great. Many of you probably remember, maybe have heard that name from history. The, the warrior general, the king and general who led Greece to full military dominance over the known world. That's the next kingdom. That's the bronze kingdom. The, the torso here and the, 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 uh, the torso and the legs, the upper part of the legs are meant to be represented by Greece. And they, Greece ruled from 332 under, under Alexander until 146, when the Greeks were defeated at the, a very famous battle, the Battle of Carthage, by the last kingdom that's listed here, the kingdom of iron, which represents Rome. Roman rule lasted until 70 AD. All these kingdoms are about 200 years each. But the main point of this, of course, is the bottom part of the statue, What are the feet made of at the bottom of the statue? Clay, right? They're made of iron mixed with clay. Now, think about what this meant for Nebuchadnezzar. There's been a lot of ink spilt throughout history about all these kingdoms and the way that this works out. And uh, maybe you grew up in a church with lots of charts. Lots of churches love to look at Daniel and Revelation and chart it all out. But for Nebuchadnezzar, the point of this wasn't, hey, what are all the parts? The point of this for Nebuchadnezzar was one message. Your kingdom isn't going to last. You're done. You're done. This is very short-lived for you. Your kingdom won't last. And I want you to think about also what this meant for Daniel. Daniel is a Judean exile who's been brought forcibly out of his homeland. He's been brought into serve in the Babylonian court. And they have had one word from God about where they are and what's going to happen to their people. I mean, they've been in this place of like, what is going to happen? 
They've gotten one word from the prophet Jeremiah who said 70 years. That's the length of time that my people will be in Babylon. But this is the first word that they get from God again. Guess what? It's not just 70 years. 70 years, and there's going to be a kingdom. God has all these plans lined up, and there will be a true and lasting kingdom that's symbolized by the little rock at the end of the vision. Let me put up this next slide that shows you the statue, if you want to remember this. One more slide here. Got that? No, one, one back, sorry. Yeah, this one. Of each part of this statue. Now, we need to hear both of these messages, both the message that Nebuchadnezzar heard, this kingdom not going to last. You're done. And we also need to hear the message that Daniel heard from this, which is this, God is the true king, and there is a kingdom to come. Now, here's why you need to hear this today, because the next 13 months are going to be crazyville if they're not already, because we're headed into an election season, and we all know what happens in election season. People lose their minds, right? Some of us lose our minds, and we need to think about this. Another election year means political advertising, debates, stats, constant statistics on who's the front runner, scandals, not to mention right now we have one, the Democratic front runner who's got, there's whispers about impeachment around him, and the Republican front runner has criminal charges against him. Wow. Crazyville. So could it get crazier? Yeah, probably. Probably. We will see that. I think that is true. But here's my hope in preaching this Daniel series, that we will not freak out. We will not lose our minds, no matter what happens in the economy, no matter what happens with government shutdowns um, this morning, right? No matter what happens with the environment, no matter what happens even in the general pop populace, that we will not freak out, we will be okay because we need to, and, and my hope this morning is that we will uncouple both our hopes and our fears from American politics. Now, uncouple your hopes from politics. I need to say this. Many of us, we're prone to want to invest a lot of energy in this over the next year, to listen to pundits and follow podcasts and listen to the debates and read the blogs and hear all the stuff and doom scroll in the middle of the night about what's going to happen. And I just need to remind you that every person running for office is a politician. This is not that big a news flash, but every person is. They are not normal people. They are not like you. These are people who are paid to have platforms and postures. If you do a little case study on this. Research how many of these people who are running for public office in our country have flip-flopped on their personal convictions in order to be elected. This is an almost universal thing. And can I also say, how many of our candidates drop God or Jesus or something about the Almighty or the divine in their language to pander to voters? I doubt, this may be not very nice, I don't care, I doubt there's a true Christian among any of them that are running this year for public, for president, okay? I'm just going to be honest about that. And I just want to remind you, um, 
uncouple your hopes from politics. Every person who's running this year has feet of clay. But the other one I want to say, you may be like, yeah, I know this. I know, no, I know. You may not be tempted to deify any candidate. You may be like, yeah, old news, Bradford. But while you may not have your hopes attached to any candidate, my gut is that we have a lot of fears attached to candidates, right? And so my call to you is, again, uncouple your fears from American politics. Whoever wins this office next November will become a footnote of history. You heard me right, a footnote of history. Can you remember who was president 94 years ago? Not off the top of your head, probably most of you. Maybe, maybe one person in this room can do that, right? But, um, but I just want to remind you, this election, yeah, it's important, but we are not voting for infinite sovereign ruler of the universe. That position is comfortably taken and permanently filled, right? We do not, we're not voting on that. Uh, as we said last week, there is a God in heaven. He is the revealer of mysteries, and he is king of the rocky kingdom. So follow the trajectory of this passage, Right? It goes from the shiny but the transient to the insignificant and permanent. So let's shift from talking about the rickety kingdoms to talk about the rocky kingdom. Right? The, the message of Daniel 2 is very simple. Earth, earthly kingdoms are all going to fall. God is the true king. And then, So here's what the readers, the first readers of the book of Daniel, whether you think it was written in the 500s B.C. or the 100s B.C., doesn't really matter because the main message was the same. No matter what is going on, look to the rock. Look to the rock. Can you recognize what is the real and the lasting kingdom? Several years ago, what should have been the last Indiana Jones movie came out. And it was called Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. And it was a hunt for the Holy Grail. So here's the backstory of it. Indiana Jones and, of course, the Nazis, they're looking for the chalice, right? They're looking for the cup that Jesus had at the Last Supper. And they finally locate this. And here's what happens. You go in, there's a pile of all these chalices and cups. And you have to pick out the right one, and then you get the water, and you can either drink it yourself, and it's supposed to give you, like, everlasting youth, or you can give it to somebody else, and it will heal them. Well, the Nazi shows up first, right, and gets the chalice. I'm hoping I'm not spoiling this for anyone. <laughs> Sorry, too late. So, uh, gets the chalice, right, drinks the water, and, of course, Steven Spielberg moment, turns to dust and falls, falls to pieces. It's really great, right? Uh, then Indiana Jones shows up, and, of course, he's looking around. Which is the right chalice? And he says, oh, yeah. Jesus was a carpenter. So among all the gold and the silver and the bejeweled chalices, there's one little wooden cup. He takes that, fills it up, gives it to his dad who's injured, and it heals him. Indiana Jones identified the right king and the right kingdom. And the question for us is, can you? Can you identify? I mean, that's really what's laid out for the reader of this passage. Can you identify what's the real king and what his kingdom is like? In Daniel, this chapter, verse 44, Daniel identifies the rock, the little rock that comes at the end as the kingdom of God. 
and tells us four things about what, the dream tells us four things about what this kingdom is going to be like. First, this is a rock that's not cut out by human hands. In other words, this is not a human invention, God's kingdom. It's not human effort. It's not human creativity that makes the kingdom. The, stat, the, the statue is the work of all human effort and creativity, smelting, metallurgy, forming, and shaping. The rock is the only thing that's just a natural substance that's unprocessed. The rock, which strikes, is not made by human hands. Now, this is what Jesus said about his kingdom when he came. Luke 17, once, having been asked by the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God will come, Jesus replied, the kingdom of God doesn't come by your careful observation, nor will people say, here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. God's kingdom is not a man-made, tangible thing. Now, let me be real straight. Churches feel all too human, don't they? Doesn't the church oftentimes, coming to church, being part of the church, feel really, it's not a very human thing sometimes. But God's kingdom is much, it contains the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's even larger than that. And God's kingdom, while invisible, while it, it, it's, it's invisible, it is the one thing that is not human, in t- human invention. It's God's own invention. It is an invisible and supernatural reality. Second, the rock is the least valuable substance in the whole dream. And so God's kingdom, despite being unconquerable and eternal and divine, isn't it something that looks kind of poor and small and weak? I mean, don't we want to see some power? You know, and for many people, the church also seems to be weak and foolish and inconsequential. God's kingdom seems weak and foolish, This is the time of year when the great pumpkin Charlie Brown comes out. Remember that holiday classic for Halloween. And all the gang are going trick-or-treating, and they go, and they've got their bags, and they come out to the sidewalk after going to each house, and they say, I got a candy bar. I got an apple. I I got a cookie. And Charlie Brown says, I got a rock. They do it like house after house. I got a rock. Charlie Brown always has a rock, right? And I think that that's how we often feel about God's kingdom. Everybody else has got a candy bar and a cookie, and we got a rock. It feels inconsequential. But this is what God had told people about his kingdom. This is in Psalm 118. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, the rock that looked worthless. It is the vital part. The cornerstone is the vital part of construction, or the capstone is another way you can interpret it. That the capstone, the most important part of the structure Structurally vital, that which looks insignificant is the most important. Third, this rocky kingdom grows. Look at verse 35. It's, it's not a huge mountain that smashes the stone. It's a little rock that smashes the stone. It starts off small, but then it grows. In the dream, Nebuchadnezzar sees the little rock that smashes the, the statue grows into a great mountain. This is exactly what we also know about Jesus and his kingdom. He comes two times. The first time, he came in weakness, in human frailty, in an insignificant village in Palestine. 
They came looking small. Matthew 13 even said of his kingdom, told him a parable, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. And even though it's the smallest of the seeds, yet when it grows, it becomes the largest of garden plants. It becomes a tree. So even the birds come and sit in its branches. And this is really important for us because it's important for us to remember that the kingdom has come, but the kingdom is also coming. It grows. It grows. This is why Jesus taught his disciples. The kingdom's here, but it's not fully here yet. He taught his disciples to pray for the kingdom. And he says at the end of the time, his followers receive the fullness of the kingdom. The kingdom is at first so small and so weak. And so weak, in fact, that John the Baptist, remember Jesus' cousin who baptized him in the Jordan, was pretty disappointed with Jesus. Do you know this? He was kind of disillusioned. He's like, are you really the one? Or should I expect somebody else? This is so insignificant what you're doing. And yet think about the miracles of Jesus. The miracles that Jesus performed, they were not just naked displays of raw power. If they were not very creative, Jesus, like what about stripes on the moon? That would have been a good one. Turning the Sea of Galilee into chocolate milk, that would be a good one, right? Melting all the Romans, Steven Spielberg moment, great miracle. Jesus didn't do any of those kind of miracles. He did these odd miracles, these healings, these exorcisms. What, what were those for? Well, John calls them, in the Gospel of John, he calls them signs, signs of the kingdom. And we think of miracles as disruptions of the natural order, something odd, something as supernatural and out of the ordinary. But a lot of theologians have pointed over and over, these, the miracles of Jesus weren't disruptions of the natural order. They were restoration of the natural order. Blindness shouldn't be. Death should not be. Sickness should not be. Being, it, it, being taken over by demons should not be. And Jesus' miracles were all displays of, this is what my kingdom is going to be. I'm going to set everything right, and one day it will all be right. This is why when we talk about the kingdom, let's put up this last slide, we talk about it as both an, the kingdom that's come and the kingdom that's coming, and that we live in an overlap of the ages where Jesus' birth was the inauguration. You can see the little cross right there, the first coming, the life and ministry of Jesus. And yet we wait for the fullness of his return, his second coming, where he will come and make all things right. And so we live in this tension moment of what we call the already and the not yet. The kingdom, it's already here, but there's more to come. In Galatians 1, it tells us that Jesus' death rescues us from the present evil age and it brings us, Colossians 1, into the kingdom of his dear son whom he loves. And yet we also know in 1 John, it says the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. And yet the fullness is, we're waiting on this. So look here, Charlie Browns. Fellow Charlie Browns this morning, don't judge the kingdom by what it is right now. The fullness of the mountain isn't clear yet. Hold on to hope. What will be has not yet been revealed. Last thing we can say about this kingdom is this rock, this rocky kingdom, 
lasts. I want you to think about what we call gold and silver. What kind of metals are gold and silver? We call them imperishable metals, right? I could take my ring and take it somewhere and have it melted down, and it could be reformed into another precious object. It's valuable. It's malleable. It's an imperishable metal because of that. But this is what God shows Nebuchadnezzar in this dream. What looks imperishable is actually perishable, and what looks perishable is actually imperishable. What you think is going to last forever, the gold, the value, the silver, that's all destined to be destroyed. And what really lasts is this rocky kingdom. That's what's really going to last. So again, the question for us, like Indiana Jones, can you recognize the real kingdom? Are you living into the real kingdom? Because there are messages all the time about who's really in power. We're going to spend the next year debating who's really going to be in power. And we need to really be able to discern and actually discern not just in, with our mouths, but in our very lives, that there is a real kingdom. All these rickety kingdoms, they don't last. They have feet of clay. All these politicians. You know, Daniel was a man who lived between an already and a not yet. He's given this promise, 70 more years and you guys get to return home. And then he's seen this vision of a kingdom that's to come. And so he's living between a promise and a fulfillment. Can I remind you, this is where you live today. This is where I live today. Jesus has come and said, the kingdom of God is within you. It's here now. And yet there's a sense in which it's not here yet. And we leave, live in a tension point. Anybody love to live in tension no, living in tension is a, a terrible thing. Humans always want to resolve tension in some way. And we live in this tension point of the ages between what has been, what has already come to pass, and what will be, between promise and fulfillment. Understanding this, this chart, understanding what time you live in helps us not to make the mistakes that a lot of Christians are making in our age. You know, I want to characterize it this way. Too much already and too much not yet. Okay, let me, let's think about this. Too much already. The kingdom of God is already here. That will get you to Christian nationalism. That will get you to Christian nationalism. You will think the kingdom is right here, right now. But let me remind you, America is not God's country. America is not God. Christian nationalism misunderstands the nature of God's kingdom. It's too already as if God's kingdom was right here, right now in our government. Making our government into a Christian government has never been a biblical goal. We're never commanded to make that happen. That's not really what we're supposed to be about as God's people. Any talk of Christian values apart from Christ isn't Christianity. And the main value of Christians is not kind of restoring some kind of moral order. Our main value is a Jewish peasant who died on a cross and everybody knowing him. That's our hope. And so one error with not understanding this chart is we're looking for too much at already. 
There's also the error of looking for it too much, not yet. Too much, not yet turns you into an, the Amish community, central Pennsylvania, or fundamentalism. You'll think the kingdom is all future, and so your job is to withdraw from society and just wait around. Wait around and pray a lot. You'll think that anything secular is really, really bad. Too much, not yet. And it leads to, to people who are disengaged. So if you learn this dynamic in the already not yet kingdom, this calls you and helps you to live in two ways in the tension. First, this. This already not yet kingdom calls us to both patient waiting and also immediate action. So I want to show you this in the passage. See, see what we see in the passage is here Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel, they're praying. They're waiting in prayer. They're waiting for God to come in his fullness. They're praying for that. But they're also working. They also stepped into the political appointments in that court in that day that God had placed them into and said, be fruitful here. And they embraced that. Apparently in C.S. Lewis's day, there was this statement that was very popular among Christians to be so heavenly-minded as to be of no earthly use. And C.S. Lewis, he hated that phrase. He's like, first, I've never met somebody that actually fell into that category. I've never met somebody who's so heavenly-minded that they were of no earthly use. I'm not sure that's a real problem. But he said this, a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not some form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do Live in the tension. It doesn't mean you're to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you'll find out that the Christians who did the most for the present world were the ones who are longing the most for the next. I love that statement. The ones who did the most for the present world were the ones who are most longing for the next. That's living in the tension. The already, the not yet. The second tension is it calls us and equips us to live with both humility as Christians and confidence as Christians. Now, I don't think this is probably news to anybody. We all know Christians can be kind of the worst. <laughs> Arrogant, proud, self-righteous, smug. I mean, there's a type of confidence among Christians sometimes that's really just pride at root, isn't it? You know, but Christians who have this already and not yet perspective, have that perspective even of themselves. When you look in the mirror in the morning, you see yourself in this, if you look with the lens of the already and not yet on your eyes, you see I'm both something God has started, but I'm something he hasn't finished yet. There's a sense in which I'm not already arrived. I've not yet arrived. I'm his, but not fully in all the ways that I want that to be expressed. And what that leads to in a Christian life is humility. You know, it should lead us to a place where when somebody confronts you in sin, you're like, huh, you don't know the half of it. Like, you, you got no idea, but thank you for identifying that. You're right, because I am already and not yet. We're people who can be approachable, and non-defensive and humble. One writer 
John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, he puts it this way, I am not yet what I ought to be. I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I hope to be, but still I am not what I used to be. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Humility. But this already not yet gives us also a robust confidence in what God is doing in the universe, a robust confidence. Have you ever watched an animated movie with a child? Like Pixar, DreamWorks, Disney, you can, any of these, right? As an adult, you can watch this movie and you know they all have a happy ending, right? Ariel doesn't die, right? In the Cars movie, you know, it's not like like McQueen ends up in a junkyard somewhere. We all know how these turn out. They all turn out well, and if you sit with a child, even a child who's watched the same movie over and over again, you watch as they experience all the highs and lows of the movie plot, even though you, the adult, know, like, we know how this is going to work out. I'm not really all that jarred by what happens to Lightning McQueen or Ariel, because I know the end. See, we are people like Daniel. Didn't know how it's all going to work out, But God has told him the end. There is going to be an everlasting kingdom. There is a kingdom that is sure. You know, I I know a pastor who said, this verse in this passage, verse 44, is the only thing that allows me to get out of bed in the morning. I love this. He says, this is the verse 44, "The the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it itself will endure forever. Is that what helps you get out of bed in the morning? Kingdom people can live in this tension with humility and confidence. And let me tie all this up. Last week's sermon was all about anxiety. Today's sermon is all about God's kingdom. One of the people who I think best embodied in American history this kind of living in the already and the not yet, was Martin Luther King Jr. On the night before he was killed, on April 3rd, 1968, he gave a speech to sanitation workers in Memphis, uh, the people who run the garbage trucks in Memphis. They were striking for better wages and more rights and more equal pay, and, and he went to a rally with them, and he gave this speech that probably you've heard before, but it embodies such a sense of non-anxious presence in both waiting and working, in humility and boldness, in living in a place where you're hanging on to a kingdom that's yet to come. Listen to what he says, night before he died. I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead, but it doesn't matter with me now. Because I've been to the mountaintop, and I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. He's allowed me to go up to the mountain, and I've looked over, and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land, and I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. 
You hear that hope, that poise, that confidence? They had no idea of the bullet that would come the next day. But a man who lived in the already and not yet. May God give us grace as people who live in an anxious age with lots of rival kings to identify the king and to live in his kingdom. In the name of the Father and the Son, Holy Spirit, would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. There is nothing like your word. Father, we pray that we would be people who, as we look in the mirror and in the newspaper, as we look at our phones, as we look at ourselves, we would hold out the fact that we live in the already and not yet kingdom, that we would hope in this rocky kingdom that will become a mountain. Father, make us people of confidence and humility today. Make us people who work and wait well as we look to you. Father, we pray that you'd preserve and protect us. Lord, fill us with hope. Help us to be kingdom people. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and respond to God's word and song together.